3: Welcome to the show. It's the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday we're here at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. to Take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Anything on your heart or mind, uh, Bible questions, life questions, uh, what we believe and why we believe it. I'll do the best I can to answer your questions. You need only to call us. You can dial 210 210- Three four zero ninety five eighty five. That's 340 If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll free at 877 630 KSLR. That's 630 You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com uh, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, Hit the call now banner. That's the only thing you have to do. And then you can use your hands-free feature and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 210-340-9585. Well, because tonight is Wednesday, I'm going to be teaching uh, Isaiah tonight in our Old Testament study. Chapters 38 and 39. Lots of important stuff there for us as as we consider um, the value of second chances. So I'm going to talk about tonight. And then tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in the studio with me on the date day show. Uh, Ladies, it's a day for you in particular. Uh, If you need any encouragement or uh, anything that Paula's dealt with or is going through can help you, uh, tomorrow is the day to do that. So that's our date day edition tomorrow. Let me get right to some questions that have been sent in. Uh, Here is the first one from our email inbox from Chip. He said, would you please explain Acts 21, verse 4? It says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Was the Lord testing Paul? Chip's hard question because we we don't know the motive uh, isn't given to us there. It certainly was a test. I personally don't think it was a test uh, from God. And it's a curious, curious um, turn of events there. Uh, Paul knows that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. The Lord has made it really, really clear. But it's always true that when we set our hearts on serving the Lord, when we're committed to doing what he's asked us to do, then there's always going to be tests and trials. Again, the tests may be from God, but most often they're not from God. Uh, In this particular case, there were uh, prophets, the dramatic prophet Agabus, uh, among others. And every time Paul would go, there would be a word from the Lord. And it turned out it was a true word from the Lord uh, that would say, um, um, these bad things are going to happen. Agabus took the belt and said, you know, the man who wears this belt, is going to be bound in this way. Um, Now, I I personally think, and this is my opinion, I think the prophets of the New Testament who delivered those warnings to Paul were right about the content, but wrong in their interpretation. Now, let me explain. Most of us would think, you know, if if, uh, the Lord told me to do something, or I think the Lord told me to do something, And then somebody else came along and said, but if you go there, you're going to die or you're going to be in real trouble. Uh, I think our interpretation would be, don't go. And I think that's what the the prophets that approached the Apostle Paul uh, in in every city, um, I think that's what they were doing. I think they were just saying, no, the Lord gave me a word. And this word is that you're going to have trouble. They're going to arrest you and they're going to put you in jail and your life is going to be at risk. And Paul gets to the place where he has to say to them, look, I know what people are saying, but you're breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem, but to die there if that's what's necessary. So the idea there is that Paul was going to go based on his knowledge that the Lord spoke to him. And the fact that others were using um, their their visions or their words from God to sort of try to change Paul's mind is something that they probably overstepped in. I think we have too many times, Chip, uh, a tendency to to uh, expect that, well, if God's with me on this, if God wants me to go, then everything's going to be okay. And that's not true. So I think the Lord intended to warn Paul about the hardships and trials, but the don't-go part of those prophecies I think, was the prophets overstepping. You know, this is one of those places where the Apostle Paul does his best Jesus impersonation. In Isaiah chapter 50, we're told that Jesus set his face as flint to go to Jerusalem. In other words, my my face is rock-lighting. I'm not going to move off of this journey that, that my father has asked me to take. Well, in Paul's case, from a worldly perspective, it certainly would have been easier had he not gone, we certainly would have understood if he would have kind of got alone and said, you know, I'm just not sure if if God sent these prophets to tell me that I'm in danger, well, then maybe I shouldn't go. Maybe I didn't hear right. But you see, Paul knew. And he wasn't going to be dissuaded no matter what. Later, when the Ephesian elders say goodbye to him and they're crying Most of all, because what Paul said, they will never see him again. They gave up trying to persuade him not to go when they saw that he wouldn't be moved, that he wouldn't change his mind. I think, personally, Chip, this is a great, great example of faith in action. I think any time that we do something that puts our lives in danger, but we're doing it knowing that this is what God called us to do, I think obviously that takes great faith. Think about today, and let me end with this, Chip, on this particular question. Think about the the people that go into uh, foreign mission fields now. It was just, uh, oh, I don't know, six months ago or so, we had a missionary uh, who was murdered in a foreign country and it made news all over the world. Uh, His name escapes me for the moment, but, um, you know, he understood. He didn't want to die. He wasn't looking forward to dying. He wasn't being foolishly risky. But he knew that that's where God wanted him to be. And since we are servants of the Most High God, he gets to make those calls and we don't. So I think Paul was just demonstrating not only great faith, but I think he was demonstrating amazing courage as well. 340-9585 Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Manuel. Why did Jesus tell people not to tell who he was or about the miracles that he did? You know, Manuel, it would seem to us to make sense that Jesus would want everybody to know who he was and, and, and uh, about the miracles that he did. It seemed sort of to advance his ministry and the crowds would get bigger and bigger. But Jesus said... Uh, repeatedly tell no one what I've done for you. And the reason is simple. Jesus was on a schedule and it wasn't yet time for him to be revealed. There were times they tried to make him be king by force, make him come into his kingdom by force, by sheer numbers. And the result was he refused to be manipulated. Jesus had a time schedule. We don't often think about that, but We know that the day that Jesus was um, revealed for the very first time in Jerusalem as the Christ, the Messiah, we call it Palm Sunday or Triumphal Entry Sunday, Um, that was the day, the first day that he would publicly declare who he was. And that day was important because that was the day that was prophesied by Daniel 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. That's the day that Jesus had to come into town and accept his praise as the Christ, the Messiah. Had he been one day earlier or one day later, it wouldn't have been him. It wouldn't have been perfect, fulfilled prophecy. And Jesus would always look for that time. He would say often, Emmanuel, Mine hour has not yet come. And so every day of Jesus' life, now I think about it this way, Manuel, I'm a little weird, so don't misunderstand, but every day that Jesus was alive, from the time he was born in the ba- in the manger, every day he began a journey to get to that place we call Calvary. Every day. And there was a divine appointment. It had to be kept. There were no alternatives. And so when people wanted to take him by force to make him king or when they, they, they were going to spread the news, one of the things you remember, Manuel, is that most of the people, when he told them not to tell, they told anyway. But to be sure, he was on a time schedule. And at just the right time, Christ died for sinners at just the right time. So that's why, Emmanuel, thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Isaiah. He says, I want to know if repentance is an essential part of justification. Uh, Isaiah, it is. uh, uh, Repentance uh, precedes justification. We, We don't get saved until we acknowledge first that we're sinners, that we need to be rescued from our sin that jesus is that man we cry out in faith and the moment jesus comes to live in us in the person of the holy spirit that's when we're born again and that's when we are justified now let me give the audience just a very quick uh, easy way to remember what justification is all about justification think of it as just as if i'd never sinned and when jesus died and we received him as our lord and savior We were to God just as if we'd never sinned. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is a perfect righteousness. And it was freely given to each and every one of us. So repentance is not only an essential part, but it actually precedes the justification part. Now let me share something. I heard a young woman uh, say, just yesterday, in fact, I was listening to a teaching on the Internet. And this is a woman who's, uh, a young woman, who's come out of a, uh, a lifestyle of, of lesbianism, uh, has been a powerful advocate for the Lord uh, since then. Uh, but she she basically said, if you meet Jesus, if you're really saved, repentance is impulsive. Isn't that a great Definition, great description. If you really meet him, if you look into the eyes of holiness, if you figuratively look at that beautiful face, then we're moved to impulsive repentance. It's not something we have to think about. It's not something like, well, you know, he looks pretty mad. Maybe I better straighten up. The encounter that each of us has with Jesus changes us to such a degree that repentance is instinctive. Repentance, we know, is the first word of the gospel. It was the first word of John the Baptist's message, the first word of Jesus' message, the first word of Peter's messages, and Paul's. Repent the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. And repentance is required. Now, one final thought on this, Isaiah. Repentance means simply turning around where you are and going in the other direction. So if you're walking away from Jesus, and somehow in walking away from Jesus, this is exactly what happened to me 20 years ago, as you're, Walking away from Jesus, you turn around, he's going to be right there. And when you surrender to him, when you say, Jesus, I'm that sinner, please forgive me. At that moment, repentance then is instinctive, impulsive. And we don't have a choice. That's what being in the presence of pure holiness does to us. And Isaiah, that's the reason I tell people here at Calvary Chapel all the time, if you've met my Jesus, you're different than you used to be. You cannot stay the same. We can come to Jesus the way we are, but we can't meet him and stay the way we are. It is a practical, spiritual, a physical impossibility. Because when God the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you, remember, his first name is Holy and we desire the holy things of God. Now, we're talking about justification. Well, at that point, sanctification begins. And that's the process of being made more like Jesus every single day. The more you're with him, the more like him you are. If you talk to him today, you spend time with him today. If you're in your word today, learning about him, well, tomorrow you're going to be more like him than you were the day before. And our lives as Christians should be continually changing in the likeness of our Jesus. Who and what we spend time with matters. And Jesus meeting him, if you meet him, then you're different, you've changed. Good question, Isaiah. Thank you very, very much. Here is a difficult question from Veronica. How should we view Christian blogs committed to exposing corruption in the church. Uh, Veronica, a couple of things. I'm going to take a little bit of time with this because I think it's so important with the explosion of information, the access to information that we have these days. As Christians, each and every one of us, we have to decide what is the most edifying way to spend our time. And there are, as you noted, tons and tons of Christian blogs that seem to be hell-bent on exposing other people's sins. You know, there's some people that are just wired for justice. And they're going to go on their crusade. The problem is that that calling, if it is indeed a calling from God, I'm not sure that it is, but if it is indeed a calling from God, that calling requires us to respond like Jesus would. And can you imagine Jesus responding to one of his own by calling them names, by exposing their hidden sins or at least their perceived hidden sins and here's the problem Veronica with these Christian blogs they need readers and to get readers they need to have more interesting stories, clickbait and I've just never been able to justify in my own mind why it's anybody's business what happens in a church in another continent or in another state when when we've got our own sins to deal with every single day. Uh, I have read and read occasionally some of those blogs and it just seems like they're trying to get more and more sensational. They're trying to get more and more well known. They're trying to increase their readership And they're violating the rest of the word of God in the process. Now, I think, Veronica, two things. One, I think that corruption inside the church needs to be exposed. I tell our church all the time, if I get goofy or if I get caught in sin, um, uh, get me out of here. I'm no longer worthy to be your pastor. God, I think, however is best able to expose that corruption. Now, let me play the devil's advocate because this is exactly what they would say, and they do say all the time. They would say, well, we're here trying to protect victims. This guy's a bad pastor. If he's abusing his authority, if he is uh, guilty of of, uh, sexual immorality, uh, the the women he's with, uh, or in some cases the man he's with, um, they're victims too. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can know all things we can do all things we can unravel the deep mysteries of God if we can do that but have not loved, then all we're doing is making noise and Veronica I think they're making a lot of noise I'm not sure that their motives are pure they can, and I'm sure they are personally convinced that the self-righteous crusade they're on is important. But let me say it this way, I don't think anyone has the right to write about or expose somebody else they haven't prayed for from a heart filled with the love of Christ. Now here's the other side of this, and I'll stop with this. As a Christian Christian, we have to be careful what we expose ourselves to. If all day I read uh, horrible stories of pastoral abuse, it would bum me out. We should be bummed out by stories of abuse. Don't misunderstand, please. But do we want to spend our time with Jesus or do we want to spend our time but those accusations, I know those kind of accusations sort of whet the appetite of our flesh. Truthfully, our human nature is that we all like gossip. We want to hear something bad, especially if someone appears to be a Christian, you find out something bad, we've got to know the rest of the story. I don't think that's an admirable quality. So I would drastically limit my, my exposure to those Christian blogs. Uh, I haven't read very many Christian blogs that I thought were edifying or that I thought added much to my walk with Jesus. I don't need to privately stew over something someone is doing in New York or in, in um, Wisconsin or some other place. And if I do, I need to pray for those people. Paul said that we're no longer to fight with worldly weapons. And this to me feels like a worldly weapon. Our battle is spiritual. Our weapons have to be spiritual. And one of the weapons that we're given in instruction about spiritual warfare is to pray continually in the spirit and you're not praying in the spirit if you're not praying in love so I think Veronica that's the best I can do on that it is concerning to me in my spirit I would want to be exposed if I was guilty of sin certainly not in my flesh but I think there's times when a patient God times when we exhaust his patience and he's going to shout from the rooftops that's not through a Christian blog God will expose our sins our sin number says we'll find us out and I think we need to be able to do that I said that'd be the last thing but one final thought here for Christians who are in church or there's gossip going around about somebody important, your pastor or somebody else in church. We need to be super, super careful not to repeat lies. We don't want to be cynics, always willing to believe the worst. In fact, love always trusts. I translate that at times, love believes the best. So to give them their fair shake I am certain that most of those women I'm going to say that because most of the blogs that deal with abuse most of them are written by women most of those who deal with sexual abuse the overwhelming majority of them are written by women um, I think those women need to learn to trust the Lord to deal with this church. It's not our job. There's no spiritual gift of watchdog ministry. And every time we're looking out, the enemy is going to try to destroy us because that's not the Holy Spirit, it's the unholy spirit. And no matter how right they think, no matter how righteous they think their cause, none of us have the excuse to misbehave or misrepresent jesus in the process so veronica thanks for the question i hope that makes sense it is one of the issues that 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago we never had to deal with hey we've got 30 minutes left in the program Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls phones have been quiet 340 we'll be back in two minutes
1: Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the second half of the program. 340-9585. Hey, it's not too hot to call if you have a question. Here is a question that came in from Lori. She said, is it possible for a Christian to be a practicing homosexual? Laurie, Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 both says that people who live like this and homosexuality is one of those in this region, just one of them. We're in no way picking on homosexuals at all. But the Bible says that people who live like that, if that's a characteristic of their life, if that's a lifestyle, not an occasional mess up that they repent over, that they're heartbroken because they did it. But if it's a a lifestyle, in other words, the the professing Christian who says, well, God made me this way, so I I, I know I'm going to be okay. Um, That's to misunderstand the heart of God. It's to trample on the grace that God has given us. So those who identify as gay Christians and live in their sin are not really Christians at all. You see, being a Christian is more than what we say, much more than what we say. Being a Christian is who we are. Remember uh, the, the, the responsibility that repentance is impulsive um, um, when you meet Jesus. If these men and women met Jesus, they really know him, then they couldn't continue in a lifestyle like this. It's that simple. Now, I realize all of the social ramifications. I realize how unpopular it is to say those things. But but here's the truth. If I have a, a straight man, a heterosexual uh, man or woman, uh, and they deal with lust and, they, well, God made me with a high sex drive, so it's not my fault, um, I, the, I would say the same thing to them. Fornication is one of the things that if your lifestyle is fornication, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter that you were raised in church. It doesn't matter that you were baptized. What matters is, has your heart been baptized? And a, and a, and a, 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 a person who's a professing Christian who is living a gay lifestyle has to decide that God gave us the gift of sex. God gave us our gender identity. And we have to decide... Do we want to satisfy our flesh or do we want to please God? And the choice that we make, same thing would be true if this question was about somebody that was overtaken by pornography or um, um, just any other sin, a, a, an habitual drunk, a thief. If you've met Jesus, you can no longer be who you once were. And let me also say this before I go to the phones. Lori, becoming a Christian doesn't magically take away the proclivity to same-sex attraction. It doesn't. It's just one of those things. Is my body his or does it belong to me? And while I may be attracted to the same sex, I can't give in to those temptations. Why? Because I love Jesus more than I love pleasure. I love Jesus more than I love lust. I love Jesus more than I love me. And if you really understand that's who he is, then he gives you the ability, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, to escape the temptation. Let's go to line one talk with Jerry in San Antonio. Jerry, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
4: Hi, Pastor. Uh, Thanks for uh, taking my call. My pleasure. My question my question is uh, around second, second Corinthians five fourteen and fifteen. So in Second Corinthians five fourteen, uh, the uh, the part that says, uh, "What does all mean? Uh, does it mean everyone in the world? And if it's everyone, then um, the next part of that is everyone died or all died." And then another question is, uh, the next part in, in verse 15, that those who live, uh, does those who live mean, is that everyone? So I'm going to mm-hmm. hang up and uh, listen over on the radio.
3: Okay, before you, before you hang up, um, Jerry, uh, you said Second Corinthians 5, 14, and 15?
4: Yes. Yes, Pastor. Okay.
3: Thank you. I can do that. Thank you very, very much. Appreciate the call. Um, in, we have to look at the context of this passage very, very carefully. Um, Paul is now one of the one of the literary tools that he uses in his letters to the Corinthians uh, is is um, in in a, in a holy way. He's boasting. Uh, he says in in the go back to verse twelve. He says, "We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again." but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in heart. Now he's answering the critics that say, um, why are you so bent on persuading uh, people to come to Christ? Um, And then he says, this is how I live my life so that I can persuade men. And he says, you know, I'm not trying to put myself up on a pedestal. What I'm what I'm doing here is putting my life on display. You know, I said Jerry, and I'll get right back to the topic in a moment. But, but in my last study, uh, last Wednesday night study, which I would recommend to all of you, you can go to CalvarySA dot com, um, chapters thirty six and thirty seven uh, in uh, uh, the book of uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. Um, we're in one of those places where we've got to understand that we need to be able to say to people without feeling foolish, without feeling um, arrogant, that follow me as I follow Christ. We need to be able to do That's basically what Paul is saying. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And Jerry, whether it's you or me or anybody else, we've got to be able to say that. And so when he gets down to the uh, 14th and 15th verses, He's he's explained, this is why we're doing it, because Christ's love compels me to do so. Why? Because I'm convinced that one died for all. That doesn't mean that every person is going to go to heaven. It means that he died. His death was efficacious for all people, but it wasn't efficient for all people. It was efficacious in that all we had to do is choose. Paul said, I'm doing that for you. Uh, And then in verse 15, he says, And since he died for all, that those who live, and those who live is a reference, Jerry, to those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he says, The result of all of this is a changed life, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, we don't live for our own pleasure anymore. We don't live for um, um, personal success or personal satisfaction Instead, we live for Jesus Christ. Now, as you know, Jerry, we're going to go down a couple of verses. And this is sort of the, the summary of the whole first part of Second Corinthians 5. He says in the 17th verse, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so that's what he's saying. Look, Christ died for all, but those who live for him are the ones for whom his death is efficient. And then he says, "Here's how you know who's who. those who live no longer live for themselves but live for him. If we're sold out for Jesus, Jerry, then we're new creations. So I hope that answers your question, Jerry. Thank you very, very much. Here is a phone call. Let me see who's this one's from. It's from San Antonio Ray on line two, Ray. Thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Surprise, it's me. <laughs>
3: Hi, and you're early today. Show, Good for the
2: you. The show is not over.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, going back to just before the break, the subject, and it, and it stirred my interest as far as and, and I don't know exactly how to present this, but uh, the, the circumstance of this really probably could be very universal. For instance, if a guy was at work and there was this person that they encountered all the time and it was not uh, fortuitous for the guy to just quit the job and leave or whatever, but um, if, if, if this guy person uh, feeling he is a christian and trying to you know get along but he encounters this other side of a person who is just contentious insistent persistent and contentious and and it and, it, and it's difficult and i just wondered if there was you know, short of uh, like like when when he was uh, running away and left his robe there, you know. <laughs> He's, no, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, I think you know what I'm referring to, um, uh, you know, because he wouldn't have sex with the lady. <laughs> uh, he just fleed, you know, fled but uh what 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 would the person's best uh way to uh resolve or or not enter into the contention uh you know and and in a in a kind way but if you know if the the if it was just like <laughs> uh that bounces off of me and back to you, kind of deal, you yep. know. I mean, all yep. kinds of little clips and stuff. I mean, how how does a, how does a person best deal with that kind of a situation? And I'm going to listen on the on the radio. Is that fairly enough clear?
3: Yep, I've got you, Ray. Thank you for asking. It's a more important question, you know. And in fact, it's probably something that I should have said, dealing with the earlier question about. Uh, how are we to view these Christian blogs who are bent on exposing corruption? Um, for those of you who don't know, if you were didn't understand uh, where Ray was going, he was talking about Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. Um, uh, Joseph, I cannot do this thing and sin against God. Well, in the same way, we have to view the sin that tempts us in our lives. And so what we've got to do is protect our walk with Jesus and protect our hearts from being attackable by Satan. And when we start hanging around sin, when we start engaging in gossip, or when we start engaging in things that aren't edifying, well, then the enemy is going to be there. Peter says he's like a roaring lion prowling around, waiting for that moment to devour. And we're going to give him that moment. And the one thing that I've learned about these people who are exposing corruption, these self-appointed, self-righteous bloggers, is that they're not really happy people. There's very little praise coming from their lips. There's very little uh, to commend uh, the church and the work God is doing. Uh, there's very little uh, that would bring joy and fulfillment into, into their lives and into the lives of others. Um, you no, know, because they're on this mission. And they may think it's a mission from God, but I promise you, it isn't. Uh, let me explain the, the, the why I think this question is so important. The Bible says... Uh, beginning in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Now, remember there's no chapter and verse breaks in the original manuscripts. And we do that to make it convenient to find things. And some of those chapter breaks aren't very good. And chapter 11, what we call the Hebrews Hall of Faith, and we have all of these wonderful, wonderful examples of men and women who stood against the flow of the world that they lived in. They stood for God, when it might cost them everything, including their lives. In fact, in tonight's study, I'm going to be talking briefly about uh, Manasseh, who is the the son of Hezekiah. Uh, Our story tonight is about Hezekiah and being near death. And God says, uh, through Isaiah, you're going to die. And then uh, uh, Hezekiah turns around and prays. And God hears his prayers, sees that his heart is repentant, And then he sends Isaiah right back and says, okay, tell him I'm going to give him 15 more years to live. Well, those 15 years his son Manasseh who by the way would reign for 54 years proved to be the most evil and wicked king that ever reigned on any throne in Israel. Now when I say more wicked than Ahab. Ahab. That's something. But he was more wicked than them all. And in fact, Manasseh is the one that we're told sawed the messenger Isaiah in half. A story that we get out of Hebrews chapter 11. So what's our response? Because of God's faithfulness, because of all of these men and women who've gone before us, he says in chapter 12, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, sin we all agree with. I know I need to stop doing that. I'm I'm wrong. Okay, God, I'm sorry. But what about the things that hinder? We can read all of this stuff. And if it's not edifying then it hinders our walk with Jesus. And it hinders our walk with Jesus. And we need to get rid of it. And we need to be polite, but we don't have to be kind. Just, you know what, I I think more Christians ought to go to people who are using foul language who claim to be Christians or gossiping who claim to be Christians. Saying, you know what, that doesn't please God. Now, you're not going to be popular for sure. But I think the most loving thing we can do is go to people like that, Ray, and tell them, Look, that doesn't please God, and I don't want to hear that kind of conversation, so I'm going to leave, and I hope and pray you'll repent. So that's how we deal with it. That's how we deal with it. Thanks, Ray. That was a really important question. I should have mentioned that to the first question earlier in the program. Let's go to San Antonio again on line one. Kenny, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
5: Hello, Pastor Ron. I just had a quick question, and then I'll... uh listen to you off the air um i okay. was talking to a, a a christian brother of mine and he and um uh, a couple of weeks ago a, a jehovah's witness came to my door and and i just told him or well, your jesus is not my jesus and you know that was the end of that well then i shared that with him and i said well i think or i don't think but i, I what i said i said well i uh, um I believe that that that's a cult just like the Mormons. And then he says, can you be very careful what you say. So is that wrong for me as a Christian to call them a cult or I mean I know in, in Matthew where Jesus talks about the weeds and cares and at the end of time he'll separate, you know, the the uh the non believers from the you know, from the believers but that, that was my question. Was it wrong for me to call him a cult?
3: Um, Thank you, Kenny. I can, just, I, can listen. I can deal with that, and I think you'll be encouraged by it. Not only were you not wrong, uh, it was the loving thing to do. We're to warn people about cults. Uh, if even an angel uh, uh, declares to us a gospel that isn't really the gospel, Paul said, let him be cursed, cut off from God, anathema. Um, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And we have to warn people about those things. And uh, Jehovah's Witness is the very definition of a cult. Mormons are also a cult rather than a religion simply because they take the character of God and they distort it. They take the person of God and change it. And Kenny, there's nothing Christian about Jehovah's Witnesses And for you to answer directly like that uh, is not only appropriate, uh, but it is the loving thing to do. Now, um, most of the time, Jehovah's Witnesses especially will not engage you in that kind of conversation. If you get them off their script, they're really, really lost. If you say, well, the Bible doesn't really mean that you're taking that out of context. That's not what it says. Uh, they, They, they most often will not engage you. Um, And so what we tell people is, look, I I wouldn't have said your Jesus is not my Jesus. I would say you don't know Jesus, because your Jesus is not God the Son. Their Jesus, like the Mormon Jesus, is the Son of God. But unless Jesus is God himself, well, that's where the heresy comes in. That's where the cult uh, definition comes in. And I don't know why your friend would say, can he be careful what you say? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, because they use the, the name Jesus, doesn't mean that they are Christians. And so you don't have to be careful at all. Say it in love, that's what your responsibility is before God. But, you know, Paul was very, very direct. Very, very direct when people are trying to harm the cause of Christ. With Jehovah's Witnesses, Kenny, my heart breaks because in our neighborhood, at least, and I do a lot of running in our neighborhood and, and uh, my walking and praying in the neighborhood uh, where the streets are familiar with me. I'm visually impaired, so I need to, to know where I can put my feet down. Uh, but they will bring their children. Uh, our neighborhood seems to be a place where they, uh, they've they targeted. And uh, I've been watching this now for over 20 years. Um. And and they'll come in families, they'll come in groups, they'll have these little children all dressed up and go door to door to door. And uh, I'll actually at times follow them around for a little bit while I'm walking or running in the neighborhood and just be praying, Lord, protect this house, protect those ears, protect that heart. Um, we have to warn people. And there are times when I've stumbled on Jehovah's Witnesses sharing or evangelizing people where I'm thrust right in the middle of it and it's a requirement for us as Christians say what they're telling you is not true. If you really want to know who Jesus is then here's my number. You can call me or give me your number and I'll call you. But we have to do something. We have to say something. You were not wrong at all, Kenny, in saying it. I talked to your friend asking him, why did you say that? Don't, do you not know that they think that Jesus is Michael the Archangel? Do you not know that they've actually intentionally translated the Bible incorrectly so as to support their heresy? We have to be active in defending our faith. Standing for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Kenny, thank you, and thank you for knowing your stuff. Well, let's see, I think i got time for maybe one more question. Um, Jennifer says, Pastor Ron, is it possible to achieve sinlessness? I have a friend who says he has. Well, your friend just disproved his point, Jennifer, by lying to you. (laughs) So, no, it's not possible in this life to achieve sinlessness. The Apostle John in 1 John says that if anybody says he's without sin, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. That's pretty definitive. So it is not possible to achieve sinlessness until we are with Jesus, we're like him, this corruptible body has been put off and we've put on incorruption. That's the only time. Now, having said that, Jennifer, it's really important for us to understand that because we can't be sinless, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be. Paul says, aim for perfection. Jesus talks about aiming for perfection. So, uh, I, I don't want to sin. I get frustrated when I do. Um, I hate it when I do. Um, but the moment I think I'm without sin, well, then the devil has done his job, and I'm only fooling myself. So it's very, very important that we understand that the the um, heresy, and it is heresy, that is growing Even more popular in these last days, remember, in the last days, people won't put up with sound doctrine, and we're in it. Um, This, I can be sinless. I'm no longer a sinner, I'm a saint. No, we're saints who sin, because we have flesh. And this teaching is getting more and more popular. A guy named Bob George sort of spearheaded it, but now it's going, the, the internet has spread all these things like wildfire. So what we do is we understand that the Bible is our source for doctrine. The Bible is what we have to hold on to and believe. The problem, Jennifer, is that too many people don't know what the Bible says. Just a a very cursory reading of 1 John. Small book. You can do it tonight. John makes it impossible to believe that these things are true. So no, we cannot achieve sinlessness uh, under any circumstances But we ought to keep trying. And that's not a source of frustration. That's just what being more like Jesus is about. So Jennifer, good question. Thank you very, very much. Let me remind you tonight that we have a Bible study here, Isaiah chapter 38 and 39, loaded with important practical application for believers. You can watch it at CalvarySA.com. Or you can join us. We don't have huge crowds on on uh, Wednesday night, so there's plenty of room to come in and fellowship with the family. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the day, day show. We will see you then on AM 630, The Word.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh.